Anybody who has followed Christ, anybody who is looking at following Christ, anybody who has observed Christianity has to begin asking some questions. And a very simple question is, what is the confession that God requires? What confession does God require of man? And this is an essential aspect of what we're going to be taking a look today in Mark chapter 8. And we're also going to include uh, the last miracle of chapter 7 because it so coincides with the miracle that takes place in chapter 8. But the other questions that we begin to ask when we start asking these types of questions is, how, how badly should I, how should I feel about my confession to the Lord? How should it have an emotional response in me? And one of the things I love to do is um, read these old confessions. I brought come a couple of these up here. I'm strange being a minister. I actually enjoy reading uh, prayers of others. Uh, this one here is called the Valley of Vision. And they'll spend a lot of time um, confessing their sin. And you would think that God requiring confession of us, that in the Bible there would be these long lists of how we detail all of our sins. Last week we saw Jesus pointing out 13 different types of sins, sins that come from the heart, sins that we do in, in, in deed. And you would think that God would want us to belabor all of these terrible sins that we confess. And if you look at church history, you see that there have always been different groups that would beat themselves and uh, be upset over their sins, and they thought that that was a way to get closer to God. Let me just read to you my favorite. This is from the Valley of Vision. It's a collection of prayers uh, from Puritans. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, Thou hast brought me to the valley of vision, where I live in the depths, but see Thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold Thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Lord, let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. I read these because it helps me to know how to confess and what to confess. And so I think this is part of our human condition that we're to grow in these matters. And today you see the Apostle Peter here and Jesus, and Peter will give a confession today. And that's where this whole um, passage is going today is towards this confession that Peter's going to make. Now what I'd like us to do is think about a few things as we take, before we take a look at this um, text here. 
Last week I didn't have this turned on. I have it turned on today. I was hoping that there wouldn't be a repeat. It worked perfectly in the 11 o'clock service last week. I think there's certain... Oh, there we go. If it doesn't work, I'm going to need you in the booth to forward with me. I'll try and make it work. Here's some great confessions. Notice the brevity of them. It's actually breathtaking, the brevity of the confessions that we see in the Bible. We read one today from Psalm 51. You see that up there from David. Um, you see uh, Paul confessing, I am the chief of all sinners. That kind of says it all, doesn't it? You've got the tax collector saying, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. And Jesus saying, this is the confession that the Lord requires when he teaches on this. I'm just going to say click. When I say click, then we go to the next screen. Beautiful. In Luke chapter 19, Zacchaeus says, Look, Lord, here I am now. I give half of my possessions to the poor. I have cheated anybody out of anything. I'll pay, pay back four times the amount. Now, this type of a confession scares a lot of people off from Christianity. <laughs> right? What, I'm going to have to give up that much money to follow Christ? Um, and then we see Jonah, who is dying in the belly of a whale. And he says, Those who cling to worthless idols forsake the grace that could be theirs but I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation is from the Lord. These are some of the great confessions of faith in the Scriptures. And they should teach us and they should instruct us in what the Lord requires. Click. This is going to be humorous. Now, here's what we experience in real life. This is a statement made by who... Well. Can anyone name them? Go ahead, build it out. U.S. Grant made this statement regarding... Oh, I even had it up there. You could, have, you could have yelled it out. You could have gotten it. He had some problems in his administrations, and he said, mistakes have been made as well as, I, as all can see, and I admit it. Okay, so this phraseology had, began with U.S. Grant over 125 years ago and has crept into the modern lexicon of being a mea culpa which means it's an apology of sores. It's basically, mea culpa is Latin for my bad, my apology. And so when a corporation has a, well, we, we live in Texas, so we can say this, a big oil spill, they'll say mistakes were made. When a major corporation accidentally gets asbestos in one of their prob products, they'll say mistakes were made. When the pharmaceutical company says yeah, we kind of knew that those drugs were addictive, but we still prescribed them without warning. Mistakes were made. Right? So this is what we live with. Um, and here's a few other things. Click. We remember this guy. His confession was, I am not a crook. Click. I did not have Tex-Mex with that woman. Okay, you're seeing my odd sense of humor. Click. The unsatisfying problem with apologies and mea culpas is they rarely right the wrong. They rarely are as heartfelt as they should be. They rarely take full responsibility. Okay, now we're beginning to see why confession is so important. I really don't 
Um, like what Paul Krugman says 99.9% of the time, but he's right on this. We are a nation of su suffering from an epidemic of infallibility. No one, president or not, wants to admit to wrongdoing, at least not publicly. That says it perfectly. But yet, if you're going to pursue and follow after Christ, confession is required because of who you are in your sin nature. Click. Okay, so we're going to take a look at quite a bit here, but we're going to take a look at it as kind of, kind of a high level. This is not going to be, we're, we're going to elaborate everything because one of the things that took place here is the way that um, Mark is constructing his gospel is what we're going to look at today has all been presented to us in very similar fashion and similar accounts. That the feeding of the multitude in verses 1 through 9, a similar feeding took place in Mark chapter 6, 31 through 44. Uh, when he goes and crosses over uh, after feeding the 4,000, he did the same thing. He crossed the sea back in Mark chapter 45. When he has a conflict with the Pharisees in verses 8 through 13, he had the similar type conflict with the Pharisees in chapter 7, verses 1 uh, through 23 that we took a look at last week. And then we see healings here today, um, both in 7, 31 through 36 and today. There is this, like, a repeat of the same sort of scenarios. Different scenarios, but it's almost as though Jesus is teaching the same things, performing the same miracles. He's duplicating them because he's trying to say one thing. Who do you say that I am? Who do you confess that I am? And so this is uh, one of the things that we've already kind of looked at some of these things, so we're going to take a, another look at these here today. Click. Hopefully you can read that. If you can't read that, listen to the word read to you. Some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. He looked up to heaven, and with a deep sigh, he said to him, Ephatata, which means be opened. I prefer the English. Um, at this time, the man's ears were opened. His tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. People were overwhelmed with amazement and said, he has done everything well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So Jesus heals the blind man here, and the response of the people is, he's amazing. He's a magician. He's a, a great healer. What, and, and this is over in Gentile country. And so they're thinking, oh, those Jewish people, they're such great physicians and healers. We're so glad that he's come to our land. He's amazing. Now, when they say that he does everything well, it harkens back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 30 and 31, when, G, when, when God creates. And we know through the New Testament that it was Jesus who was creating the world in seven days. And the Scripture says, and God rested and said, it is good. It is good. And so, it's very similar. It's harking back that there is this recognition among these Gentiles that he's done something that only God can do, but there's no confession that he is God. Do you see the distinction? It's important you see this distinction as our story and narrative unfolds here through the different vignettes that we're going to find Jesus. Click. 
Some people, this is, this is the, the, the next healing. Now, this occurs 20 verses later, but I wanted to put the healings together to help us build a synthesis of what's going on uh, in, in the storyline. Some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Now, these two healings are very similar. Um, not to be kind of to gross you out, but Jesus uses spit to bring healing to these men. Now, in the Roman, Greek, and even Jewish world, um, that was seen as a healing salve. Now, don't go spitting on each other and say, see, I'm just trying to heal you. Okay? But, but it's a different cultural context, okay? So that's why this is going on. Also, um, this man here um, who um, is, is hearing impaired, um, we also see that uh, his, his sorry, he's, he's um, oh, I got those wrong. His eyes, I said he was a deaf man. No, he was a blind man. Um, he was visually impaired. Um, so anyhow, the, the other man was hearing impaired. We see in both cases that the way that Jesus heals them they had once had sight. They had once had hearing. Because this man here says, I see people and they're walking around like trees. Well, guess what? If you've never seen anything, if you've been blind your whole life, you wouldn't even know what trees are. So obviously this man had lost his sight. The other man had lost his hearing at some point. The point of these is saying that man in his natural condition is blind to the things of God. And that when God begins to work, it's not always an instantaneous revelation. Have you ever talked to people about when they came to know Christ? And they'll say, I don't know. I was just always kind of a Christian. I went to church all the time and I don't know exactly when I came to believe in Jesus, but I did. We see that gradual nature of revelation. And so this is pointing to that, 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 that when, when someone comes to faith in Christ, it's not always that, wow, sort of Paul on the Damascus Road type of thing. Click. Okay, back to Mark 8, 1 through 11. Jesus here feeds the 4,000. He's over in Gentile territory here. Remember that he similarly, a few months earlier, he is fed 5,000 Jewish people. Now he's going to feed 4,000 Gentiles. He called the disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. First of all, notice the compassion of Jesus for humanity. If you are sitting there and you're, if you're wondering today if Jesus sees your need, he not only sees your need, he has compassion for whatever your need is. Whatever is troubling you, he sees it, and he goes beyond just seeing it. He has mercy and compassion for you. And so he sees them in need, and they have already been, he said, they've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. 
thank God for drive-through windows. I mean, some of you this morning had to go through a drive-through window just to get sustenance. My son, Jack, who's at Texas Tech, says, Dad, here's what I don't like about the people of my generation. If it doesn't come out of a microwave or out of a drive-through window, they don't know where or how to get food. Okay, this was not the case here, but you see a similarness that these people were not Boy Scouts. They were not prepared to go on a journey. They were not prepared for food. And so Jesus is having to provide for them. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. And they did so. They had some small fish as well, and he gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. One difference here the commentators make is he gave thanks for both the fish and the bread in this um, uh, miracle, where the previous one, two chapters back, he was more Jewish and he just prayed one prayer over both of them. Now, that's kind of a small little distinguishing thing that theological geeks like me like, but it's saying to us that this is truly a different miracle, and it's with a different emphasis to a Gentile audience. Click. So after that miracle, the Pharisees came and began to question Jesus, to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. Okay, here's the thing with the Pharisees. We, we, we saw the interaction last week with them. They're asking for a sign. No commentator will say exactly what sign they're asking for, but they're asking for really a sign like Moses would have given out in the desert. They're, they're, they're looking for him to be a, a pillar of fire or they're looking for him to perform some miracle similar to what took place in the desert. That's what they think. Or they're trying to get him to perform some type of a sign so that they can judge him by their legalistic standards that they've been putting together for the last 300 years, which then has become what's known as the Mishnah. Right, which is the teachings, their, their strict codes of law. And so Jesus sees their game. They think they're all smart, but they're really not. And he sighs heavily. Do you see that here? This really gives you a little insight that when we teach that Jesus is fully God and fully man, you're seeing that man aspect of him. He is truly frustrated and upset. The word here is not a commonly word used here, but it, it's kind of like he's agitated and frustrated, almost to the point where he's almost thinking, don't you guys get it? He's just frustrated with the nature and condition of humanity that they can't see and know who he really is. Because in all these vignettes, Everybody's coming kind of close to, oh, he must be God, right? If the Pharisees didn't think that there was some sort of spiritual or godlike component to him, they wouldn't be wasting their time with him. It's everybody realizes 
There's this spiritual God sort of supernatural thing about Jesus, but we don't know what it is. Click. So Israel's leaders are clueless. He's frustrated. Now he gets to be frustrated with his disciples. They're not the brightest um, bunch. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf. See what I said? They're not the brightest. You would think that somebody would remember, hey, you know, in, in, in the baskets that they had in that um, miracle of 4,000s, the baskets were the size that were, the leftovers were in a basket the size that could hold a man. You would think one of these 12 guys would have, you know, grabbed a couple, thrown some bread and some fish into a satchel, but they don't. They just hop into the, they're like teenage boys. And so, be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, it's because we've got no bread. Jesus is talking about spiritual things. Aware of their discussion, Jesus said, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? You see, they're, 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 they're focused on material things. They can't see what's spiritual. They can't see what is of God. They can only see what is of this world. Click. He continues to them. Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of, of pieces did you pick up? They answered seven. And he said to them, do you still not understand? Do you still not understand? He's saying, this was a miracle of God. The only way a few loaves and a few fish can feed not just 4,000 men, but wives and children along with them is only if God does it. But they don't see it. And so what does this tell you about the nature of man? The nature of man in his natural condition is he is blind to the things of God. He is spiritually dead. He needs something from God to be able to see into the nature and the character of who Jesus really is and into the things of God. Click. Okay, our last vignette for the day. Jesus then questioned his disciples. You see, this is building for Jesus. He, at this point, and here's the thing, this is the pivot point of Mark. Verse 30, okay, or this verse right here, verse 29, that is actually drop-dead middle point of the book of Mark. If you add up all the verses up to Mark 8.29, whatever that total is, from that point on to uh, through chapter 16, equal number of verses. Mark is saying really clearly here, this is the most important part of the... And think about it from a literary perspective, that you could have your main point and the first half of the book exactly in verses, leads right up to your main point, and then exactly the same number of verses after it. Mark is saying to us really clearly, this is what it's all about. This is what the gospel of Jesus is all about. So Jesus says, who do people say that I am? He's, he's just kind of, he's really at, beside himself with, with, with all the people. Jews, Gentiles, leaders of Israel, his disciples who've been traveling around with him for about a year and a half now, 
No one knows who he really is. There's a great book that's been written, and it's called Please Understand Me. It's talking about the 16 different personality temperaments. Please understand me. Nobody understands who Jesus is. You may go through life like that. You may be living your whole life thinking, I just wish somebody would really understand me. And you can kind of relate here to what Jesus is experiencing. Nobody knows who he really is. And remember, he's been in, he's been in heaven for eternity. And everyone, angels, and all the creatures of heaven know exactly who he is. But humanity does not. And he's come to save humanity. And so they told him, saying, Ah, you're John the Baptist. And others say Elijah. Now, the John the Baptist thing, that was being spread by Herod. That's why Jesus said previously, don't believe the leaven of Herod. Okay? Because that's what propaganda does. Political leaders like to put out false narratives so that the people will believe them and come to the wrong conclusions. Herod was doing this about Jesus. But he said, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him and said, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the Holy One of Israel. You are the Son of God. You are the Redeemer of mankind. You are the only hope for salvation that man and woman has. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew and Luke, who also record this, Jesus' reply was, Peter, this has not been revealed to you by flesh and blood. This has only been revealed to you by the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus is clearly teaching us to come to this type of a confession, which is the confession God requires of man. That it is the work of the Holy Spirit. And this is what he's calling us to do, to call him the Christ, the Lord, your Savior. Click. The nature of biblical confession, it means an emphatic agreement or acknowledgement. It means you are emphatically agreeing that Jesus is the Christ and Lord. Confession is, in a sense, a form of prayer. It should not be falsely interpreted as just the confessions of a miscreant. Okay? I think some people think when they hear the word confession that it's like, oh, okay, I've got to get on my hands and knees, I've got to say all these terrible things. No, the confession that God requires is that you confess that Christ is Lord click. There are confessions of sin, confessions of praise, but we're talking here about confession of faith. It is an assent. It means it requires your brain to know that Jesus is the Lord. It requires your emotions and your heart to embrace that. And then it also requires your will to put your trust into who he is. Augustine said it this way in his book called The Confessions. If you've never read The Confessions, do it in 2019. It's the first autobiography in human history. He says, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. Is your heart restless today? You know why your heart's so restless? It's not resting in Jesus. Wherever you're troubled, wherever you're struggling, Go to Jesus. Rest in Him. Next slide, please. He also says, For what am I to myself without you but a guide to my own downfall? You are my Lord because you have no need for my goodness. 
See, right there he confesses all of his sins. You don't have to belabor every deadly sin that you commit. Because when you confess Christ as Lord, you're confessing the totality of your sinfulness. Now, I do think it's a good idea if you swear or you overindulge in something that you name it and you claim it and you confess it. It's good for you that you're acknowledging your specific sins. Click. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Isn't that beautiful? There's no more beautiful words that God can hear or more beautiful words than you can say. I'm going to ask for the uh, deacons to come forward. As they come forward, I would just like to illustrate as they come forward, the life of somebody who you may not be aware of, but I learned of her in a book that I was reading um, called the On the Road to Confession by David Brooks. And this woman, her name was Dorothy Day. She lived until 1980. She worked with the poor in New York City and in the Bowery and had an amazing ministry, especially for a woman of the 20th century. She lived among the poor. She wrote journals remarkable Christian woman. You would not probably agree with all of her political positions. But when she was asked at age 80, before the year that she died, to write her memoirs, she had this to say. She said, I got in front of my typewriter and I began to think of our Lord and Savior who came to earth all those centuries ago. And I could only be thankful that through my 60 years of ministry, he was always on my mind. And she didn't write the memoir. Because that was the memoir. That Jesus is the Christ, the living God. So let us prepare our hearts for the communion table. As we prepare our hearts for the communion table, this is the place where those who have confessed Christ as Lord come and celebrate by His command that as we gather, that we're to remember Him by partaking of the bread and the wine. The same bread and wine that uh, the Jewish family of God celebrated Passover in the thousand years before Jesus. And so we continue to remember Jesus. When we partake of the bread, we are reminded of his body, which was broken for you. And when we partake of the wine, we are reminded of his blood that was shed for us. And so the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 reminds us that we should not take of the bread and the wine unadvisedly, that we should partake of it soberly, confessing Christ as Lord and taking time to search our own hearts that the Lord would reveal to us that which we must confess to him that he's requiring us to confess, but to confess Christ as Lord. And so as you partake, you do this in remembrance of him. The um, elements will be passed. I will say a prayer. We will pass the elements and... Um, when everyone has received and the band is done singing, we will partake together, and I will lead you in that instruction. So hold on to, on to the elements until all have been served, and we'll partake together. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the sending of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that he came to earth to die for sinners like us. And Lord, we thank you that you have revealed to us by the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is the Christ. And I would pray for anyone here today that that has never been revealed to that you would, just like you did with the blind man, you would remove their spiritual blindness 
and allow them to see that you really are truly the Son of God and that they would cry out and confess that Jesus is Lord. And so, Lord, we ask that you minister to us as we partake of your table. We ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.